being a small fish in a big pond, or perhaps more accurately for this episode, a small cow in a large pasture, can present its own set of challenges and opportunities. My name is Molly Gallant, and you're listening to Food Focus, the podcast. In this episode of Food Focus, we sat down with Corey Van Groningen, farmer and politician, and also one of four brothers currently running VG Meats. VG Meats is a local, family-owned company that specializes in small herd, high-care beef from production all the way through to retail. With their goal of producing the best beef in the world right here in Ontario, they are committed to taking the long way around in producing a high-quality product. In this episode, we discuss some of the challenges of being a small processor in a big food industry, as well as the importance of communicating with consumers and creative problem-solving. This is the first of a series called Talking to Farmers, where we try to present you, the Food Focus listeners, a glimpse into what it's like to be a farmer. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. So, Corey, thanks for taking the time. I I always enjoy our conversations. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Great to be here. So, Corey, one of the things I think people don't have a good understanding of is, is, is where their food comes from, and you are both a farmer and a processor. Can you tell me a little bit about the family business? Sure. So our family is uh, involved basically right from production of beef and pastured poultry all the way through to the retail, uh, including the abattoir, so the harvest process as well. I'm in business with three of my brothers and uh, my wife is involved as well as my sister-in-law and uh, mom and dad stay busy there as well. And we're raising sort of the next generation to come into the business as well. So... What do you like about being, you know, I expect there are challenges and we'll get to that, but what drew you to becoming a beef farmer and getting into this business? Yeah, so food for us has always been important. Uh, So my grandparents on my father's side went, you know, they experienced a war and uh, so they came to Canada after that war and uh, good food has always been important. My grandmother comes from Belgium and my grandfather came from Holland. And uh, so they've actually, you know, they've gone through a situation, uh, a devastating situation, obviously, that uh, involved very little food and sometimes very poor quality food. And so uh, so that's always been uh, sort of the ethic that's driven our family. And, and so it still drives us today. You know, one of the things that we're actually after is uh, producing the best beef in the world right here in Ontario. And so so we're, you know, we're, we're trying to take the steps that are necessary in order to do that. And, uh, and so when we offer uh, sort of the food that we raise to other people, we're always doing that in, with, uh, with that in mind. So offering the customers sort of the highest quality that they can get locally. It's interesting. This is a, a family business. I expect it comes with its own joys and challenges. We hear all about the importance of scale in agriculture. And you guys aren't a big business, but you are successful. What do you think drives your ability to do things successfully? Yeah. So that's always been, and maybe that obviously colors our decision to to focus on quality. We try to play a different game than the people who have scale are playing. And so, yeah, we're never going to beat them at, uh, you know, being the lowest cost, processor to put beef in a box so we're not we're not going to win at that game and so we to some degree we don't we don't necessarily try that's not to say that we don't try to be efficient and uh, use our resources properly but um, 
we've always tried to be something that they, you know, either don't want to be or can't be. Essentially. And, and so what is that? Uh, so, for example, right before Mad Cow is a good example, we had already taken steps to develop uh, a vertically integrated uh, supply of beef. Our goal in that was uh, was quality, uh, for sure. And so because we had put that supply chain together, not necessarily with that being the focus, so not just uh, you know n- not just creating vertical integration for the sake of vertical integration, but because it leads to better quality, we were able to avoid sort of the pitfalls that came with that. And so it was a bit of a, you know it was um, an opportunity for us uh, to some degree to be able to market our own beef without taking the low prices that the larger packers were offering. And uh, the bonus that came along with that was that consumers uh, had a heightened uh, interest in understanding exactly where their food was coming from. And so they a vertically integrated player could do that, whereas other, other suppliers couldn't. And vertically integrated doesn't necessarily, I mean, you produce calves, you feed calves, you process them, and you sell them. But you also have long-standing relationships with other beef producers that's different mm-hmm. than, uh, than than many other processors. Yeah. So so that, that integration is not necessarily that you own all those cattle, but that you have these long-standing relationships with these producers, and they they know what you want. You set expectations and standards for production that they meet, mm-hmm. and so that you can trace this product all the way through the system and have a much more consistent product than maybe some other brands. Yeah, like so, you know, when we when we set up our system not to be the uh, the lowest cost example, uh, uh, putting beef in a box uh, situation, we're also doing things that uh, that help us attract people who are interested in producing the best product. Uh, part of what what we do in order to sort of facilitate that is we we're we provide lots of information. So uh, every every producer that we work with, we'll give them back information on every single carcass, which includes tenderness measurements that we measure on every animal, uh, as well as back fat measurements, ribeye areas. And, you know, when we do that, those producers are now equipped with the information they need to sort of join us on that improvement. So continuous improvement is something that we're passionate about. And, you know, so they can do that if they have the information. If they're getting back uh, spotty or incomplete or just irrelevant information or data from their other places that they send their beef, they can't make improvements because the numbers don't lead in that uh, sort of ethic of improvement. So what kind of improvements do they do? Is it changing the way they feed cattle? Is it changing what kind of cattle they buy or, or, yeah. or produce? Yeah. Or, or you can even talk about your own sure. your own farm. Like yeah. that, that feedback loop seems to me to be something that we hear about all the time in in the industrial space, but probably less in terms of the, the, the two-way inflow of information we hear a lot less of in agriculture. And in, and in fact, in many cases, not least the beef industry, there's there's been a historic antagonism between different players in the supply chain, which, right. which you've really turned on its head. Yeah. Well, and we use it as a bit of an opportunity, obviously, that we're, we're interested in providing that information back. Yeah. So... To some degree, our quality improvements will come from the fact that producers who aren't interested in necessarily continuous improvement will self-exclude themselves from our relationship, yeah. you know, just because we know and they will find out if they're producing a, a 
quality that will fit, uh, but also that people who are going to use that information kind of have that attitude that they want to improve what they're doing. Uh, we've had many situations um, where, you know, in, in meeting new farmers and starting to work with new farmers, they're sometimes uh, they're scared of the unknown. They don't, you know, if they're beef producers and this is what my family does, what if I find out we're not doing a good job at it? Yeah. You know? So that's a very high risk uh, uh, time uh, period in time for them. And, um, you know, so uh, some embrace it, some don't. What's interesting to me is, is I think many people have this perception that farmers are farmers, right? That, mm-hmm. that everyone does the same thing, that there's not a lot of insight or change. But what you're saying is you're looking for a particular kind of farmer. And just like people or just like organizations, mm-hmm. there are different strengths and different weaknesses and different priorities and you find the ones that are doing what you want so not all beef is beef and not all farmers are farmers oh absolutely and and that's uh you know that's what we find so so we've never been particularly uh, interested in prescribing practices to farmers you know uh we're more interested in the outcomes that are created you know specifically the quality in this example um so you know we won't necessarily go to a farmer and say, you're going to feed this program and you're going to, there are some practices that we do exclude, uh, but we're not going to, you know, tell them that you have to grow, you know, 2,500 unit corn silage and yeah. harvest it on this date and, and so on, you know, and, and different varying, uh, you know, uh, points on that spectrum. Uh, and so outcome, our outcomes are important for us. And that's, and that's why we provide that information back is we want them to improve the outcome that they're able to achieve. They're the best, you know, the, the farmers that we want to work with are farmers who want to best adapt their management and genetics and, and structures and, you know, even just a way of life in order to kind of work with us on, on making better product. What makes good beef? Uh, well, uh, what we found out, so after a long time, we, we actually, we talk about having uh, meat counter conversations. So that's yeah. a focus group of one that we have yeah. when a customer has a question or we get the opportunity to talk to, uh, to a consumer. And, you know, so for example, sort of a, a regular conversation might go as the, oh, that steak you gave me or that I bought here last week was the best steak I ever had. You know, and so the focus group uh, effort then that takes place is, well, what about it exactly made it the best steak that you've ever had? And we find a high incidence of, uh, you know, discussion about tenderness. So they say, oh, it was so tender I could cut it with a fork or, you know, even, even you know, sort of indirect measurements like my, you know, my my two-year-old cleaned her plate, like she ate yeah. it all up yeah. or something like that. And we, we noticed that in our own family that tender beef helps with that, you yeah. know. Uh, they didn't spit it out or something like that after they chewed all the juice out of it. Uh, so that is something, you know, so, so we find tenderness is very high on the, on the scale of importance, you know, and then there's, you know, other, other jurisdictions. So like Australia's meat standards, Australia, they're all their science backing their grading system. It was, uh, you know, 40% was tenderness, 20% was, uh, flavorfulness, uh, another 20% was juiciness. And then there's sort of the unknown hidden factor of overall liking. So, yeah. you know, so those are, we're sort of seeing the confirmation of what we find here. So, so that tends to be uh, the most important thing. And that's why we, we spend a lot of time measuring tenors on every single carcass. And, 
we get a, a research from you know the beef quality audit that's done every few years in Canada just came out again with uh, 80% satisfactory experiences from customers when they sample sirloin and strip loin steak. So that means one in five instances was unsatisfactory. So and that's that's kind of what we're trying to avoid is when we're building a brand, not sending out unsatisfactory product. It's, it's, it's interesting to me because one of the things that I've always argued is that beef's biggest challenge is consistency. Mm-hmm. And I think I've said this to you before, the best piece of meat I've ever eaten is a, is a piece of beef. But probably the worst piece of meat I've right. ever eaten is also a piece of beef. And right. so getting to that, you know, one in five, if I was buying a car, yeah. uh, wouldn't be one in five survives <laughs> is probably not going to be acceptable. And, right. and, and even in food products. And yeah. so you use the tenderness as a, as a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. What happens when you get a carcass that that maybe isn't as tender mm-hmm. as you'd like? Yeah. So there's, there's good uses for those. Um, the industry, the way the industry has handled that in the past is to say, oh, a 21-day aged or, you know, a 60-day aged. So aging does improve the tenderness and the acceptability of that steak. Problem is you don't know which ones you need to age unless you're actually measuring it, right? So yeah. we're, we're identifying the ones we need to age. And, you know, we've got, uh, we've got customers who are interested in 90-day aged product yeah. for their restaurants and so on. So, so that actually becomes a very good use for or something that doesn't quite make the full yeah. cut. And then the majority of beef is, is perfectly fine to, you know, go out within seven days and we don't need to, uh, dry aging is very wasty. We lose a lot of moisture, which is weight, which is dollars yeah. for us. Yeah. So, so it's interesting that you're not just using it for feedback, you're using it for evaluation and also then to sort. And, and do you have customers who say, I want this level of tenderness or, I mean, clearly the, the, the yeah, trade-off yeah. is, is, yeah. is price. Yeah. That, you know, if, if I can give you a consistent product, whether it's the most tender or in here, do you, do you try and do that or is that tough to do? Well, yeah. Like, so if, if we, if I could snap, snap my fingers and have, you know, sort of the end result that we're looking for at the end of the day, uh, or at, you know, the end of 10 years, it would be that consumers buy beef for their use and their portion requirements rather than by anatomical cut. Yeah. You know, and, and tenderness is something that will help us get it, get it there. You know, it's and it's not an original idea for us. There's uh, been some work in Australia looking at that. Like, let's stop trying to sell people anatomical cuts that they don't understand anyways, and they haven't for 30 years. So so maybe we, if they want to grill a steak, maybe we just got to make a recommendation about, well, grill this 8-ounce steak. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, you want a 10-ounce? Okay, here's a 10-ounce yeah. grilling steak. So, and, and, and sort of give them assurance that that, that steak is going to be an you know an excellent eating experience or a good eating experience or a sat you know like a satisfactory eating experience. But you know, so give them that kind of indication because uh, that's what people are you know again it's back to the outcome right like they want to find something that fits their budget and their expectation. So that's that's what I'd like to be able to get to, and this is maybe a, a stepping stone on the way to that. Yeah. yeah. So so talked a lot about. Your philosophy and, and, and I think what some of the keys to your success have been. What are some of the challenges of being sort of a mid-sized player in, in the industry? What are, mm. what are some of the things that keep you awake at night? Mm. Well, for us, um, there's a few things. One, you know, one maybe that's interesting, uh, for this audience is that, um, there'd be easier ways to put meat into a retail case, uh, 
than the way we do it. You know, we kind of take the long way around yeah. to get there. Um, and we so we have to deal with sort of the byproducts of doing that. But it is the best way to know about your supply and to, to achieve a, an outcome of uh, highest quality. Uh, whereas if we were buying beef in boxes, you know, we don't, you know, you're not going to do a tenderness test on every strip line. Yeah. It's easier to do it on one carcass. Um, so, so there is, there is that. Um, so it's, it's sort of the byproducts of processing whole carcasses for, for an end user that, that are difficult. But both, you know, but also fun to solve, you know. Yeah. So, so like the operations management within a meat plan is certainly a unique, uh, process to try to straighten out and innovate because you know when we're working inside our in our own plant you know all things are possible we get we get to decide uh you know how we take uh for instance uh top sirloin cap is a cut that i think is underutilized we're trying to find ways to use it more but we can make it a larger portion of the carcass by the way we cut it off the carcass it's the it's the cut that uh brazilians use in the brazilian barbecue they call it batana there's the french call it a colette uh, we here in North America cut it in the wrong direction because it's part of another muscle. So it's yeah. kind of a crazy thing. So yeah, we can, we can use stuff like that. So understanding the implications of that and then finding customer base and so on. Well, and, and I think one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is, is let alone anatomical cuts is we have a full animal with a whole bunch of different muscles yeah. on it. Yeah. And we have to, you know, most of us don't eat all of the cuts on an animal and no. finding those distinct markets mm-hmm. and, and, and having the critical mass to do it because, you know, you, you can probably always sell a strip loin, but yeah. there are some things yeah, that, yeah. Are, that, that are harder and, and you don't make money if you sell just strip loins no. and the rest of it sits in the cooler. No, uh, grandpa told us, you know, that was always his lament to us was you don't make money until you sell the ground beef. Yeah. You know, that's the profit essentially, or that's the portion of the profit. And if you just keep putting ground beef or trim or, uh, you know, minor cuts that are hard to sell into the freezer, you didn't make any money, you know? Yeah. So that's, so that's, that's the difficult part. And, uh, but that's, there's, there's, uh, lots of opportunity, you know? So this is sort of another thing that keeps us awake is it becomes extremely complex because we've got now we've got to, you know, we've got to go find, uh, a restaurant customer that could make, uh, you know, a steak freed on the menu that could use a couple of different cuts uh, in order to go into that, we we know which ones perform really well and uh, make an excellent experience, and they can buy for a lower. Uh, they don't have to buy a strip loin or a ribeye to do that, you know. So, so go find the restaurant with enough volume and enough interest in that product that they'd uh, want to uh, support that. And um, but but enough volume is is one thing. Yeah. But but the investment you have to make to get that volume is mm-hmm. also tough, right? Because you're not selling everything to everybody. No, that's so, right. So so just the time to identify those customers yeah. is I expect a significant challenge. Yeah. Yeah, and this is, you know, these are I think they're probably it's probably logarithmic as you decrease in volume the the difficulty level of these things, right? So mm-hmm. they're that's where you know, we're, we say we're a large, small player in yeah. this game. And so we're maybe, you know, at that in point of inflection where it becomes easier yeah. for us. But that's that's to some degree what we offer the farmers that we partner with is they can focus on making good beef. And we've at least got the really difficult stuff figured out already that they wouldn't have to figure out themselves. So that's, uh, you know, we're, we're increasingly 
we're finding that is the the point we've passed where now we've got uh, restaurants coming to us asking us to help them solve problems that they've got with you know not being able to access local or they need an innovative cut that they can feature on a menu or something like that so you're, so you're adding value beyond just saying oh look we'll sell you whatever beef you want mm-hmm. you'll go in and say what are you trying to accomplish I know you've talked about this you and I have had the conversation where you went into some institutional customers who said, well, your beef is too expensive, but you said, but if you think about it in this term mm-hmm. and this portion, mm-hmm. it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're really not sell. You, you, you don't just have a rest, a menu here no, uh, right. of, of stuff. You say, what are your issues and, and how can we help you get there? Mm-hmm. And maybe even cut them something that is specific to their needs. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, so so we often find ourselves in that situation saying, uh, you know, how do we match up our current challenges with, a, you know, a, a sort of a need that's presented before us? And, you know, there's we sometimes we get into a rut and we've got to say, well, wait a minute, why do we do it that way? You know, yeah. why are we? Uh, there's lots of examples like that and, and shake our heads and say, OK, we do it different now, yeah. you know, um, or we strive to anyways. So you said, why do we do it? So I'm going to ask you, you said you're not the cheapest uh, you take the long way to mm-hmm. get it into the meat counter. Mm-hmm. Why do it that way? Well, because that's that's the way you know. Traceability is so important in in order to um, to be able to manage the change or the continuous improvement. If if we're getting random quality all the time, we can't tell if if a processing step that we're taking in the plant is actually affecting quality or it's not. Because if you when you're measuring the outcome. You don't know if the noise that you pick up at the end is because of the product quality going in, or it's, or it's the, some process change that you've made inside. So, so it's almost you know, we find it's almost necessary. And I think I think we're going to find aspects that we can improve on that even large players can't because they don't have good traceability or knowledge of the quality or the producers that are sending in. So, so I think um, we're going to be able to uh, go beyond. You know the quality, obviously, that's achieved uh, elsewhere, and so we're we're always looking for what indications that we're getting are is somebody's product better than ours? You know, and we kind of we look at the way that uh, beef is auctioned in uh, Japan, so the the Wagyu and Kobe, yeah. Kobe product, and so that's you know that's something to strive to is that uh, you know that there's an individual auction for an individual animal, and that's you know we could we could see that kind of. Uh, We've had daydreams about that happening with tenderness, for example, yeah. but maybe it's uh, an index of tenderness and flavor and juiciness. These animals get rated and then, you know, uh, restaurants or butcher shops are bidding on for the, you know, the best quality that go with it. That's easy. the easiest way for a farmer to differentiate and uh, receive premiums for, for doing the hard work of making a better product. Right now, they don't get incentivized to make anything beside a pound of beef. You know, so that's what they make, and it's maybe not the best pound that they could be making. What's interesting to me is one of the things I've said for a long time, and I think this is really, you guys are an example of this, is we're, get, we're getting away from commodities, is that we are, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just beef anymore. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing, I read an interesting book called The Long Tail, which says we're going to buy less of more things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very true in the fee, in the beef, sorry, in the food business, is that there are going to be people who want exactly what you're producing, and then there are going to be people who want to continue to buy sort of the bulk, you know, inconsistent, 
good. I still love any kind of beef, really. Yeah. But yeah. but really finding those customers and fulfilling exactly what they're looking for, and and that's and and that not all beef is beef. Yeah, for us, that's absolutely the best. You know, those are the those are the targets for us. As well, we're obviously interested in um, something I'm learning a lot about recently is uh, regenerative agriculture. And regenerative agriculture doesn't necessarily, uh, the producers that produce the beef aren't necessarily in the headspace of how can I improve, you know, the land. At the same time, they're more worried about paying the mortgage tomorrow kind of thing. But I think through premiums and them doing a better job on the beef they're raising, we can maybe create a bit of headspace so that they can start thinking about more of those aspects. It's something that we're going to start incorporating in our conversations with the producers we work with. And uh, I've spent some time to be trained in holistic management. So so those are all things that we'll be incorporating. The interesting thing about regenerative agriculture and uh, holistic management is the idea that it almost creates an echo chamber where when you improve the land, you improve production, which actually lowers your cost of production rather than increasing it, which is Unfortunately, what we see with some of these prescriptive manners is they only cost more for a producer to implement rather than saving them any money. So, so that's that's sort of for us. That's a bit of one plus one equals three in this situation. So, I think you anticipated uh, my second last question was, what does the future hold mm-hmm. for you and your company? And I think regenerative thinking, sort of mm-hmm. more about the land, is is a big thing. Is there anything else you'd add there? Um, well. Uh, you know, so I did my, my master's degree, I did it at the University of Guelph here, and we look, were looking at, we actually combined a bunch of research to create an economic selection index for beef sires. So, you know, so more taking reductionist research and making more of a holistic approach with it. Certainly decrease the R-squared on that, I'm sure, yeah. but uh, that, that seems to be uh, sort of our actions going forward are sort of related to that, is that we need a holistic approach. We need to we need to be able to uh, to address all of the things that makes this sustainable for a farm business as well as a processing company and a retailer and a consumer. So we're going to try and draw the connection for the consumer about how their decisions about the food they eat impact the land, which have an impact on the climate that their children will inherit, and so on. So so I think it's uh, it's one of those things that we can kind of draw all these small aspects of consumers' lives and put them together for them so they can see the big picture, perhaps at maybe at least in one in one uh, direction that they look anyways. Okay. Last question. I'm going to take you out of your processor retailer space and put you just into the into your farmer hat mm-hmm. today uh, for this for this question. What is something that you think that the average consumer living in Toronto or in Guelph or wherever doesn't understand about farmers and that you'd like them to understand? Well, I think and I hope that uh, what what we can sort of describe is farmers, uh, you know, they, they probably want the exact same thing that somebody in Toronto does, which is a good life and a good life for their families and their children and so on. And part of that is uh, the recognition that we're kind of working on this together. And if farmers uh, are allowed to do what they do best, which is, you know, ideally convert sunlight into food, let's, you know, if, if we can do that so that set them free to do that in the most efficient way possible, that it's going to be better for everybody. So, so you know, picking 
uh, food and fiber from the right sources is going to make a, a better future for anybody, no matter where they're from. We're all in this together. Absolutely. Good. Thank you very much, Corey. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. wrap up another episode of Food Focus, I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thank Zachary Von Massow for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report and get in touch with us. Food Focus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions, and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast as this helps other people find us. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.